You are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Strangers and the Strange Dead by Kipler, Chapter 2 It was two weeks later there were dead people in the woods. John Jacobson found one body, a woman's, when he went up to shoot out of season. They hauled it out down to Route 60, and because it was winter and the going was slow, we all knew about it, and people came out to see, to look at a dead stranger who gave excitement and gossip, but no real pain, no funeral, no ache for us. I was there. There had been a thaw, then a freeze, and the snow was frozen and jagged. I wasn't wearing boots, but only my canvas waitressing sneakers, and my feet were ice even before they brought the body down from the hill. The dead faces I had seen before had been funeral parlor faults, made up and preserved and pink. This face was real, swollen and scraped and gray. I saw it close up as they lifted the woman into the coroner's wagon, and the thing that froze in my mind was the row of tiny, even puncture marks in her left ear, 10 of them, maybe a dozen, meant to hold rings and studs, silver and gold. And in the nose and left eyebrow, I saw two more piercings and knew, suddenly, that the woman was young, a girl. I wondered if someone would dress her for her funeral, give her makeup and jewelry that would turn her back into the person she had been before she became dead. Mrs. Hayes from the library was there that day too. We stood close to each other, our shoulders touching as they carried the body out of the woods. We were so close I could smell her breath, tea and wintergreen, and after that day we never spoke about it. Other people spoke too much. They didn't understand how sacred it was to see a face dead and alone in the place of strangers, how much we owed silence and reverence. The FBI agents came back in the early evening when the body was still hidden in the cold back cellar of the police station. I heard that they spoke to John Jacobson and Dwayne Sampson again and the man who drove the coroner's wagon. That was Tuesday and Wednesday there was a team of searchers and Wayne and the Bradenton police weren't allowed up in the hills and there was another body, an older woman, and then a child, a little boy. They didn't let anyone see the new dead, though. They put up police tape and stood troopers there to wave flashlights, hustle people along. The news people didn't return to town, and I wondered about their absence, why they didn't want to broadcast this new piece of their story. I wondered if someone kept them away the same way they kept us away from the search scene and the bodies. Wayne stopped in for coffee on Wednesday. What's going on? I asked him, because he had known me before I was born, and I hoped that he would do something for me, give me some secrets maybe that he gave to no one else. Do you think Thomas Hopkins killed those people? I don't know, Wendy, he told me. I'm sure that they're connected to Hopkins somehow, but they didn't find any indication that he was near the bodies. Did they just walk there? Where did they come from? How did they die? Wayne just shrugged. I wouldn't begin to guess. 
There's been a lot of snow and melt up there, which means they won't be able to do much with tracking. It could be that Hopkins was just traveling with those people and they got lost up there, separated from each other. Anyway, I've worked with the feds before and they like to keep things to themselves. It's their case now. Wayne was good at his job. He knew when saying something, anything, would just get him into trouble. Theories moved in waves through town, their progress unimpeded by the static of logic or proportion. Everyone chose the one that made them most central, most connected. My aunt is a dispatcher in Boston and she heard. I saw John Jacobson right after he found the body and he said, my friend says this is related to Whitey Bulger. My story, the one that made me proud with the terror of being involved, was that Thomas Hopkins was a serial killer, long wanted by the FBI in connection with a string of brutal murders. I was alone in the coffee shop when he came in. I brought him soup. He dripped on the linoleum and I wiped it up. And then they found those bodies. I told this story to my grandfather and he nodded with understanding, but he smiled too, because I was so important in the story I told. I remember something like this, he said, two or three years ago. I listened and I adjusted his time scale because he was an old, old man. He condensed time. Two years to him were six months. To him, I was still 14, and my parents had died yesterday, yesterday. What, Pop? I asked. Bodies in the woods, down south. Virginia, maybe? Just like this. Hikers found them during the winter, frozen in their tracks. The first one was important, some army guy. I think his name was Romaine. I remember that name. Then after that, they found a couple more bodies in the same place. The reporters thought it might have been something to do with the mob. I thought about that for a moment, compared it to my movie knowledge of mobsters. I don't think there were any bullet wounds, I said, at least not in the lady I saw. But saying that brought back the gray face, the slit of the eyes, the line of piercings, I shook my head to jostle the picture out of my mind and left for work. The FBI agents stayed on in town at the Easy Rest Hotel. I was curious and I was lucky because there aren't many places to eat in Bradenton. And if you don't rent a kitchen with a microwave, you end up at the coffee shop for breakfast and lunch at least. I set myself the task of eavesdropping hoping to hear a hint about their case, about the bodies and Thomas Hopkins, the serial killer. Thursday morning, they came in about seven. The man ordered a bagel with cream cheese and the woman a yogurt with coffee. She was tired that morning. Under her eyes, under her makeup were dark circles and her hair was damp and spiky as if she had only found the energy to run a wet comb through it. This is what I heard her say to him as I brought their food. Call them and let them know that we may be here for a few more days. And then, as I refilled her coffee cup, get back to D.C. to take care of the forensic examinations. I watched them from behind the counter as they finished eating. They spoke softly to each other. I couldn't hear their words. He said something to her, shrugged his shoulders. 
She looked down at the paper in front of her for a moment, then shook her head and mouthed no. He spoke again, and again she shook her head. Then the man leaned forward over the table until he looked too big for the booth, as if he were spilling over, moving into the woman's air. He said something and laid his hand flat on the table, his fingers almost touching hers. The woman tensed and leaned away, glaring at the man, and I saw him surrender, pull back, shrink to normal size. I was suddenly tender to him and wondered why the woman held herself so still and apart from him. People are hard to write, truly. They have so many frayed threads, loose strands that don't connect one to the other. But still, the threads stand there daring us to trace them back, to see what started them fraying. We always want a story. My grandfather had spent Thursday morning at the library using the microfiche to fumble through old issues of the Boston Globe. When I came home from work, there were two photocopies sitting on the kitchen table. There you go, Pop said. I told you I saw this happen before. The earliest article was from April 1997. The headline had run on page two. Disappearance of Army Captain Baffles Fellow Soldiers. That's the Romaine man I told you about, the body they found in West Virginia. I skimmed the article. Apparently, Captain Theodore Romaine had been assigned to a base in Texas. A man with a sterling record, he had mysteriously disappeared along with a military vehicle. The car had turned up in a shopping mall in Kansas, and Romaine had vanished. The second article had run in December 2002, three years ago. Pop had been right about the timeline. This story was a follow-up to the disappearance. Body of missing soldier found in West Virginia. I skimmed the text. It was a familiar story. Captain Theodore Romaine disappeared from active duty in April of 1997. He had not been seen or heard from again until his body was found on a remote hillside in West Virginia. The article wasn't long or detailed. After a short biographical section came a few lines about the investigation into Sergeant Romaine's disappearance. The case drew attention at high levels, and until the discovery of the body, agents at the FBI considered this an open case and continued to pursue leads in the investigation. I looked up from reading to see Pop beaming at me, proud of his investigative coup. I smiled. Good work, I said. Some mornings when I worked, I brought coffee and a donut to Wayne Sampson when he came on duty. It wasn't unheard of. Friday morning early, I looked out the window of the coffee shop and saw Wayne pull up in the cruiser. Only it was strange because his lights were flashing. As I watched, he got out of the car and a woman got out from the other side. Not from the back seat where a suspect would be placed, but from the front passenger seat. But I saw Wayne take her arm and lead her up the stairs to the police station as if she were a suspect and I decided he needed some coffee. When I showed up, the woman was sitting in the vinyl chair across from Wayne's desk. She was wearing a light nylon jacket and she was shivering. Her fingertips were blue. I put the coffee and donut down on the desk. 
Wayne didn't say anything to me. He brought the coffee to the woman. She picked it up and held it in her trembling fingers, but didn't drink. I think she was warming herself on it. I found her on the road, Wayne said. Those FBI people. But the words weren't out of his mouth before they walked through the door. They were loosely tucked as if they'd been woken from sleep, but they were dressed in the usual clothes, gray, formal. The female agent went and squatted before the shivering stranger. She lifted the woman's eyelid and flashed a penlight back and forth in front of the eye. I realized that she was some kind of medical worker then. Wayne and the male agent stood back by me. They spoke to each other as we watched the examination. Where was she? The male agent asked. I found her down on Route 60. She was walking in the middle of the road. It's the only place where there's no black ice. She came willingly in the car, but doesn't seem to be able to talk. I couldn't get a name out of her. The woman agent was listening to the conversation. She looked at Wayne, angry at something I couldn't guess for a moment, and then said, She's hypothermic and she's slipping into shock. Turn up the heat. And do you have any blankets? Wayne turned and moved down the hall and I followed him, trying to be useful. There was a closet in the back of the station piled high with camping gear, canteens, coolers, paddles, and sleeping bags. Wayne tugged at a bag near the top and it came down, pulling a dozen other items clattering to the floor. I picked up the bag and hurried it back to the woman while Wayne stayed behind and put things away. The strange woman was standing now and stripped down to her t-shirt and underwear. The doctor agent circled her hand around the woman's wrist and moved it up the arm, checking for broken bones. She repeated this on the other arm, then spun the woman around, lifted the hair away from her neck, and pressed her index finger there for a moment, as if checking for a pulse. Her partner stood off to the side. His eyes did not move from her as she worked. Wayne returned and said, The ambulance should be here in just a few minutes. The female agent nodded and wrapped the strange woman in the sleeping bag, then settled her in Wayne's padded office chair, the closest thing to comfort she could find. Damn, Wayne said, looking out the window. I left the flashers on in the cruiser. He rolled his eyes and headed to the door. I watched the near-naked woman as she huddled in her sleeping bag. She was still shivering, her clutching fingers still blue. I picked up the cup of coffee and carried it to her. She took it and looked at me, then moved the cup to her nose and sniffed at it, peeled the lid back, sniffed again. Then she shut her eyes and held the cup to her face, pressing it against her blue lips. The FBI people were huddled a few steps away from me, having a quiet conversation. I'll go to the hospital with her, the woman agent was saying. You stay here and interview Mr. Sampson. He may have details. The man stepped close, touching the woman on her back. I couldn't hear what he said first because his voice was so deep and quiet, but I caught the middle of his words. Doesn't necessarily mean anything. And the end, don't want you to get too involved. When she answered, she slit her voice down to a whisper. I couldn't hear it. The man backed away from her as she spoke, straightened his shoulders. 
They both looked at me suddenly, as if they had just remembered that there was someone else in the room, and the man stepped away from his partner, came to me, touched my shoulder. Thank you, he said. I think we can handle this from here. I moved away, down the long, dim corridor. When I turned the corner toward the exit, I looked back, and they were a triangle, the FBI woman kneeling on the floor, facing the woman wrapped in the sleeping bag, touching her and talking quietly, and the FBI man still turned away, facing me, but not seeing me. Wayne came into the shop around 10 when the breakfast rush was over. There were just a few mothers and toddlers spilling out of the library story hour and into the late morning gossip session. Didn't get any caffeine this morning after all, Wayne said, settling himself at the counter. The ambulance turned up about seven. They take her to Concord or Manchester, I asked. Straight to Boston, Wayne said, shaking his head. I poured coffee. Does that mean she's really sick or hardly sick at all? Wayne smiled slightly and shrugged. What about those FBI agents? I asked. What'd they do with the bodies? They sent the bodies to Washington. The lady agent rode to Boston in the ambulance with that woman. The man is up at the hotel, I think. I cocked my head a bit. They seemed like they were having a bit of a disagreement. I wouldn't know about that. Wayne was all professionalism. The FBI man himself came in at two o'clock and took a table, and the woman walked in a few minutes later. I was off work by then, hunkered down in the big booth with my notebook. Maybe if I tell the honest truth, I'd stayed there in that booth, hoping they'd come in. The man was in casual clothes, khakis, and a brown sweater pulled over a t-shirt. I realized that I hadn't seen him out of his business suit before. The woman was still business-dressed, but still in disarray from this morning. Her hair, her blouse looked wilted, and the skin under her eyes was gray-blue. They sat across from each other and looked at the menus as if they had not seen them before as if tofu lasagna might have been added since the last time they came in. The woman had sweet and load her coffee, sipped it, and adjusted the cream three times before the man spoke to her. I ran a check on that woman, he said. Her name is Sally Cookson. She disappeared in 1996, the woman finished. I know. In the ambulance, I remembered her from the case file. How is she doing? Physically? She looks all right. Hypothermia. Frostbite on her face and hands. She might lose a couple toes. The x-rays didn't turn up anything, but she has a scar. Did she remember anything? Did she talk? The woman shook her head and poured another sweet and low into her coffee. She seemed to be out of touch with her surroundings, almost catatonic. The man was quiet for a few minutes, studying his own coffee. Then he leaned in toward the woman and tilted his head just a bit, waited until he was sure that her eyes were focused on his. I think you should step away from these cases, he said. No. The woman's voice was flat. Her right hand moved up. She began rubbing tiny circles on the skin at the back of her neck. Scully, the man said. These people... There are hundreds of them since everything ended, and so far we've only found seven alive. I appreciate your need to bear witness. I appreciate your empathy, but you're not helping these people by being here, 
and you're not helping yourself. The woman's eyes did not move and she spoke in a deep voice that didn't waver. I'm fine. You're not fine. You're too close to this. The woman shook her head. The man lifted his fingers toward her, gently touched her hand where it was tracing circles on her neck. The woman jerked her hand away from her neck. It held in the air, still clasped in the man's hand. And this time when her voice came, it was higher and less solid and her words staccato. It doesn't mean anything, she said. Don't try to read anything into it. Doesn't mean anything? Scully, you, the woman cut him off. I told you I'm fine, Mulder, I'm fine. The man let out a sudden breath, freed the woman's hand. He stared at her for a moment, then shook his head and pushed away from the table. He left the $10 bill there and walked out of the coffee shop. That was the second to the last time I saw the woman and the man. If I had known, I would have watched her more closely as she sat alone at the table and very still. I would have studied the piece of the story in her hands, pressed palms down on the table and in her lips drawn in and in her head just bowed and her eyes closed as if she were waiting for something to be over. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.